All right, because three is a crowd. I'm here today, once again, in the bunker. We're getting slowly pushed back further and further. Oh my god, we are. And it's getting tense in here. But I'm here today once again with Kelly. Kelly, how's it going? It's it's so good. I'm glad we haven't been buried underneath this random boxes. And One day it'll just be gone, and then the crisis in the bunker is over. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm looking forward to that day. It's One day very... we'll get out of the bunker. That'll be a better day. That will be a better day. Mm-hmm. But you know what makes every day a better day? What's that? Listening to Bob Dylan songs. This oh. is a Bob Dylan podcast. I should have guessed that. Yes. We listen to Bob Dylan. We pick a random song uh, every week. We listen to it for the entire week. And then at the end of the week, after listening to it, after analyzing it, after thinking about it, after lamenting it, depending on how bad it is or whatever, we finally come together and we talk about it. I've been listening to Bob Dylan for most of my life. Kelly has heard roughly the same numbers as the largest natural number that is not an original McNugget number. McNugget? Did you say McNugget number? I did, and today we are listening. What the fuck is a McNugget? Do you mean like nineteen seventy sixes? Sarah. I mean, off of the album Desire, which we desire so much to listen to. McNugget is like a proprietary word, right? So it must be chicken nuggets. I laid on the dune. I looked at the sky when the children were babies. I played on the beach. You came up behind me, I saw you go by, you were always so close, still within reach. Sarah, Sarah, whatever made you want to change your mind? Sarah, Sarah, so easy to look at, so hard to define. It took me to a thing that's about coins. Coin problem. I hate everything. A McNugget number. Coin problem. A box of 20 McNuggets. One special case of the coin problem is sometimes referred to as McNugget numbers. The McNuggets version of the coin problem is introduced by Blah. Um, 1980s, while dining with his son. A McNugget number is the total number of McDonald's chicken nuggets in any number of boxes. In the UK, the original boxes, prior to the Happy Meal sizes, were 6, 9, and 20. According to Schur's theorem, since 6, 9, and 20 are relatively prime, any sufficient large integer can be expressed as a linear combination of these three. Therefore, there exists a largest non-nugget number, non-McNugget number, and and all integers larger than it are McNugget numbers. Namely, every positive integer is a McNugget number with a finite number of exceptions. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 10... 11, all the way up to 43, which is the last McNugget number. Now, that it did say original McNugget number, so there has been some controversy. Or new science, bringing out more McNugget numbers. Do you have any idea what I just said? Not really. I don't know what I just read either. <laughs> McNugget numbers. Is this an outtake? What, what, what did we just do? I don't know. You went on a tangent. and I It was kind of amazing, right? What yeah. the fuck is a McNugget number? I mean, I had to choose that one. So they're saying the numbers that aren't capable of being selected by... Yeah. It's just a math problem. Like, yeah. if I have three a three cent coin and a five cent coin, I can't make a seven cent coin. Or, But or, that's the highest number that you can't make, which seems so weird that you're you, referencing it by the negatives, like the things that can't do. I know. That's bizarre. And it's weird to be sitting with your kid and not being present with them and then be thinking about integers and stuff while they eat their chicken nuggets. Yeah. 
That also is maybe. Hey, a so you know what's fan. great about McNuggets? It can't yeah. be divided correctly. <laughs> it's called the coin problem, and I'm about to be famous. That's great, Dad. I'm going to the play place. Also, Mom never loved you. Bye. Neither do I. See ya. <laughs> Yikes. All right, Kelly, so that was Sarah off of uh, 1976's Desire. We have heard the song before when we listened to the Rolling Thunder review. Sure did. Uh, the Bootleg Series Volume 5. On second thought, this is the second time. What, how do you feel about this? The first time, a little bit mocking because of the way he sings Sarah, and I will give it to you. That's It's, it's a little rough, and we'll get into his live versions and stuff like that later. But how do you feel about the Desire version? I like this song. <laughs> Other than, like, if the lyrics were different, the song would be great. Uh, the lyrics really hold it back because it's a ridiculous song. But the music's phenomenal. I love it. I love it a lot. And even listening to uh, the Rolling Thunder version again, just for comparison, I didn't hate it. Like, I, And even him saying Sarah, it's, it's a lot less aggressive than I remember it being. Um, but maybe I just have this to color it. So it's... Yeah, I think I think that's true, though. That's what, how it all works, you know. Because yeah. even when you were saying it, I was like, "Oh yeah, it is a little cloying, but it it's works." Definitely but... not as good as the studio version. No, no. But also the thing about Desire and the Rolling Thunder that we'll see as we go on is that Desire hadn't even come out yet, so he's playing these songs, essentially testing them for the studio version. Oh, so he was doing Sarah before it was even out it was i mean it might have been recorded that that kind of depends on what live version you're listening to or whatever but this was the band i mean that's why all the desire songs are so tight uh, even those i mean listening back to that you're like oh man that sarah is really good and it's cool that they find even little ways to like change it a little bit and it sounds different and lyrics are a little different yeah and he does change at least one of them which we'll get to when we talk about the words but well he drops a verse and changes the verse yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. So a little bit of context. Pretty simple song. There's a, a little bit of lore that goes along with it. So we will talk about that uh, in a second. But it was recorded on July 31st, 1975 in five takes. Some people think it was the first take. It was not the first take. That was put on Desire. Uh, Desire takes number five. So it's the final version. <laughs> this is the only one of two songs um, on Desire that wasn't written with a co-writer. Uh, it's this song and one more cup of coffee. So he was just, okay. you know, hanging out with a guy and they were all writing songs. And uh, this was one of them that he wrote, um, I think, all over the place. But Levy says that uh, that they wrote it at, like, the Hamptons or whatever. They were on vacation. And I think you can see that by the sand and all the kids playing. Like, obviously, he's got that on his mind as he's as he's doing this. I think that we can see this comparatively um, next to something like the wedding song from Planet Waves, which also closed out that album. Uh, and then he went on to do Blood on the Tracks, which some people consider like an album. I mean, Jacob Dylan com- d- describes Blood on the Tracks as my parents talking. Uh, and then this was a chance to, I mean, in Bob Dylan's mind to like what? Save the marriage? I don't know exactly what's going on there. But I think you can see that with uh, Wedding Song and another song that we have not heard of called Idiot Wind, which is off of um, Blood on the Tracks. Great song, but it was something that he, after Sarah fell off, Idiot Wind was put on and if you've heard idiot, idiot wind it's it's not a very it's not a very kind song so i think there's a lot of um yeah sarah's sarah the song sarah is definitely more it's i mean it's putting somebody up on a pedestal oh yeah and idiot wind is really ripping somebody apart and ripping him apart too i mean it's it's all fair game for both of that it's a much more honest song than i think sarah is but that's for another another story um he did 
play it for her. So this is one of the weird moments and I think is divisive amongst Bob Dylan fans is that he did play this song for her. Some people think that she wandered into the studio, which is something she wouldn't really do because they were already on the outs. So she's not just going to like surprise her fucking husband so that she can walk in on him like banging some new girl, you know, like she's not just going to show up. So he staged this whole thing, which is all kind of weird for basically her to walk in and to see him spilling all of his private life with her onto a song. And for some people, it's the greatest love song that's ever been made. I think for anybody else, like even thinking about it a little bit, especially if you're a private person, this is a lot of shit coming at you. So I'm going to quote Ian Bell really quick in his book, uh, Time Out of Mind. He's talking about the recording of this on the 31st of July and August 1st. Uh, he said, quote, as a, as a quiet session in which a good deal of time was spent listening to playbacks of previous recordings, then it seemed Dylan turned to his wife and said, this is for you. And then he performed Sarah. It was not done in the single take pop legend uh, might have required. Nevertheless, the song was greeted by those present in Sloman's account in a kind of silence generally described as, quote, stunned. The only important biographical detail is that Sarah Dillon remained impassive. Mm. Highland notes about the song, quote, like a number of songs and one unreliable memoir, which appear to be honest expressions, but really play hard and fast with the facts. Sarah is Dylan's way of creating a certain distance from reality for the sake of himself first and his audience second. Allen Ginsberg, who wrote the liner notes for Desire, writes this at the end which the tenses are weird on this, so be ready. Sarah is profound ancient tune revealing family paradigm, telling wife and world the last secrets of solitary weeping art. Staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, writing sad-eyed lady of the lowlands for you. Who would have thought he'd stay it? So everybody'd finally know him. Same soul crying vulnerable caught in a body we all are. Enough person, that's a capital P person, revealed to make Whitman's whole nation weep. And behind it all, the vast lone space of no God or God, mindful, conscious compassion, lifetime awareness. We're here in America at last, redeemed. Oh, generation, keep on working. Whoa. Thanks, Alan, for that. And when Bob Dylan was asked about Sarah, <laughs> let, let's guess what he said. And this is, quote, Bob Dylan in 1978, quote, well, some songs you figure you're better off not, not having to have written. There's a few of them laying around. Wow. Wow, Allen Ginsberg. Wow, Bob Dylan. Wow, also, everybody. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and so Bob, of course, distances himself immediately. So, all right, so that's the context. Uh, we'll use that context when we get into the song itself. But, Kelly, I believe you're going to let me know. I don't know that much about Sarah, to be honest. I've. It's not something that, like, I'm really preoccupied with, is, like, Bob Dylan's love life. Like, I know all the natures of it. I kind of get the, the, the rough edges. But who is Sarah for anybody out there who doesn't know? I mean, we know that he wrote Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for her, but what else do we know? I can still hear the sounds of those Methodist bells. I've taken the cure, and it just got me through. Staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, writing Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for you. I could never forget Sarah, oh Sarah Loving you is the one thing I'll never regret Shirley Marlin Nozinski 
also known as Sarah Lowndes, also known as Sarah Dillon, born on October 28, 1939, in Wilmington, Delaware. She had a rough childhood slash adolescence. Her mom had a stroke when she was a little kid, which left her, like, disabled enough that uh, Sarah's Aunt Esther had to take over looking after the kids. She had a, uh, an older brother who was, like, 16 years older than her named Julius. Wow, that's way older. I know. Then her dad was murdered in 1956 no when Sarah was in high school. And then five years later, after the murder of her father, I didn't get the deets on that, but uh, Sarah's Too mom died. For true crime. Yeah. <laughs> Sign on the window. Sarah's dad. Uh, or should I say, Shirley's dad. Sure. Uh, five years after her father's murder, Sarah's mom died. Then she moved to New York City in 1960 and became a bunny girl at a Playboy club in New York. Uh, she was in a fashion model briefly. And married a schizoid photographer who was 25 years older than her, named Peter Lowndes, who demanded she change her name from Shirley to Sarah because he couldn't marry a girl mm-hmm. named Shirley. And also, you know, his ex-wife's name was Shirley. Ah. So he, he didn't want to be reminded of his failed marriage. Fuck that guy. Yeah, incredibly shitty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck that guy. So he changed it to Sarah. Changed it, her fucking name, to Sarah. She had a baby with Creepoid named Maria in October 61. And around that time, she became friends with a woman named Sally who eventually married Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager. She's on the cover of uh, of Bringing It All Back Home with Bob Dylan, oh. sitting in the, the lounge with... Sally? Sally, is yeah. it? Albert Grossman's wife, yeah. Well, that's fun. Mm-hmm. She married Albert Grossman, mm-hmm. not Sarah. No. Sally. Sally. And but they had friends, mutual friends, so that's yeah, kind of how Well, Grossman was his manager, Right. so Bob was invited to the wedding, and Sarah was Sally's friend, invited to the wedding, and that's where they met. Uh, they started dating around that time, because that was 1964 when they got married, mm-hmm. uh, and they started dating shortly thereafter. <laughs> Bob was really good with Maria, uh-huh. Sarah's daughter, and Sarah was super into that. Yeah. This guy's really nice to he's my He's a kid. doting father. Yeah. And, he's and a, he adopted her, so. Yeah, a fish really adopted cool, her. So. Very cool. He put Sarah and the kid up in the Chelsea Hotel in New York, and they got married in November on November 22nd, 1965, in a small private ceremony on some random judge's lawn. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he knew them or what. I don't know how that happens. Like, hey, judge person, can we get married on your lawn? I want to know the story about There's that. a story literally afterwards. Uh, I think it was John Lee Hooker or something. Someone asked him immediately, like, did you get married? And he said no. He denied <laughs> it literally after. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it just happened. And it happened fast. And there's still mystery surrounding, like, what even went down? Like, wh- why? What was going on? Some judge's place in Long Island. Yeah, just, just whatever. Well, they took their wedded bliss to Woodstock, mm-hmm. where Woodstock is, <laughs> right? N- New York. Yeah, New York. But, like, that's where the Woodstock festival was, right? Yeah. Just making they sure. They put it there to get Bob Dylan to play it. Hilarious. And then he's like, I'm just going to hang out and make music with the band. Amazing. Thank you, though. They had their first child, Jesse Dillon, on January 6th, 1966. That year, Bob also had his motorcycle accident and stayed holed up in Woodstock till the early 70s, during which time they had three more kids, Anna, Sam, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. So he just used that as an excuse to hang out with his kids, right? I mean, like... Well, we talked about that. The, that break from... Uh, we brought it up, I think, on John Wesley Harding. It was like... Like, now we don't think about music in the way that it was, where he was pumping out a record every nine months, you know? And that's crazy. And now nobody would ever ask you to do that. But back then, yeah, I mean, it's almost, maybe he did have to 
fake a motorcycle accident just to like get a fucking reprieve for a second and basically you know restructure his deal and and now it looks a lot more what he did after with what we recognize today like a band's gonna take some time man let them make art you know like yeah give, give them some fucking time well Bob cheated on Sarah a ton and their relationship started falling apart and shit blew up during the second leg of the Rolling Thunder review tour supposedly Sarah showed up at a performance in 76 with a bunch of Bob's clothes looking rough and super pissed Sarah filed for divorce in 77 and a quote from somewhere that I couldn't find the source for says that Sarah, this is Sarah talking. I can't go home without fear for my safety. He struck me in the face, injuring my jaw. My five children are greatly disturbed by my husband's behavior and bizarre lifestyle. So I don't know if you know where that quotes from. Well, apparently they're sealed. um, Their testimony is sealed. Basically he gave her everything she wanted and on condition that you don't say anything. Yeah, that was me. my next fact. The divorce settlement they had, thirty-six million dollars went to her, including half... that number's also been like has been inflated over the years. Oh, okay. So it's still like a lot of this stuff is pure speculation. I mean, the amount of money is probably way more than thirty-six million because well, including theory, half Bob of... Dylan's still huge, and she still gets a cut of everything. Half free. of all royalties I that, know, that which were recorded in... while they were married, and okay. she, and after this, he went to court for Grossman and got everything from Grossman. So now there's not even, it's not even a quarter of Dylan's half. It is literally half because he owns everything. everything. Yeah. Wow. So, but everything after him, he's still a successful artist. Like, I mean, everything he's doing now, you know, Sarah's not getting a cut of anything after 77. So right. it's all very mathematical. But also the thing about the hitting, yeah, that's part of, that's that's another story. Like, we don't have any evidence of it. Uh, but, yeah, there's belief that that's in there, and reporters have heard it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly where the source would be either. Um, but it's definitely, definitely there, and I believe it. I mean, there's a, there's a story too about um, one day she woke up and one of his girls, essentially, like was he wanted her to live in the main house. Like she found out that he was she he he had stashed her on the estate somewhere because they have this huge place in Malibu. Mm. And one day she just showed up for breakfast in the morning. And that was like one of the last straws because he wanted her to live in the main house. Yeah, terrible. So when she says like that lifestyle or whatever, like whatever she got to with Bob Dylan, like the 60s Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's 1970s, man, he was living that excess, what we think of when we think of like rock star dumb, you know, in that cliche way. He was a fucking cliche before there was a cliche. And... Yeah, it tore his entire marriage apart, and he's still fucking probably writing songs about this to this day. Until they die, and until time passes on, I don't know if we're going to know. Yeah, because that non-disclosure agreement it's, was part of the divorce settlement. She and they're also friends. They went. She's she took a photograph that's um, part of the uh, in Infidels. Once we we've listened to one Union Sundown, but once we get to Infidels, inside of that, uh, and I'll show it. I'll bring it in when we talk about it. She took one of the photos in there they went to israel Israel together and and by all accounts they were friends after the marriage when there wasn't anything on the line anymore and uh and jacob dylan said you know they stopped as parent as lovers they they failed but quote my father said himself many years ago husband and wife failed but mother and father didn't my ethics are high because my parents did a great job i love that i love the idea of bob dylan as a doting dad mostly researching about sarah made me really sad and feel bad for her because she has zero autonomy from the second mm-hmm. she married that schizoid photographer guy 
who was 25 years older than her and made her change her fucking name to to now. She's just an accessory to Bob Dylan. And that's gross and sad, and it it just makes me really bad. And that brings us perfectly to the song, Kelly. I want to quote Ian Bell one more time. Quote, you could call Sarah one of the great love songs. You could also call it a piece of sentimentalized emotional blackmail. Let's talk about the song. Now the beach is deserted Except for some kept And a piece of an old ship That lies on the shore You always responded When I needed your help You gave me a map And a key to your door So the song, like you said, was was great. So musically, Scarlett Rivera, get, get it together. The harmonica at the beginning. I know. There is nothing wrong with Desire. Desire is about as like punchy and perfect of a musical album as there is. However, it does contain a song called Sarah and a song <laughs> called Joey, which are just really unfortunate existences. They don't need to be here. Well, everything about Desire, from what I know of The Rolling Thunder... It just really draws you in. And a lot of that is Scarlett Rivera. So yeah. I'm just stoked to listen to her again. Yeah. I think I have, I have a, I struggle with that sometimes where I'm like, the, I love this aspect of it so much. And I wish it was on like more albums. Mm. But then I'm halfway like, I'm okay that it's kind of only on what this one. Got, it's very special. What is it? 300 Bob Dylan albums with Scarlett Rivera on it? That would be a little too It would be a little bit yeah. much. And that's why I think people don't, like when, when um like the Los Lobos show up and um, do accordion and stuff. Yeah, it might be a little weird on one record, but it's only this one record. Like, he's got a million of them. Mm-hmm. Take it for what it is, man. It's really interesting to have, like, a new style and a new sound. And Rivera just, I mean, it just elevates it. Maybe beyond what it would be without her. Some of this, some of the songs I don't think are good enough to be. She, she, she really does kill it. And he is, not only that, but I've said it before, prime of his life singing prime of his, oh, his, his career harmonica playing too he's still into the harmonica so he, he kind of dotes on that as well which is really nice i like it when he thinks about the harmonica because really soon we're gonna get into rockism and we're gonna leave the harmonica behind and at this point he's still like a creative and it's so artist you good know? it's so controlled mm-hmm. it's a real instrument yeah and not a sound effect and it's really cool yeah so this is a man like yeah on the on the verge of his, his world blowing up as he's known for a long time and also making, yeah, some of the most controlled music of his career. Make of that what you will. But the song itself is interesting. I will say that. I wrote verbatim. It's really interesting. Really? <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because we listen to a lot of love songs just in our daily lives. And this has got to be considered a love song one way or the other. A love song even to just Bob Dylan himself. That's fine. But it's, it is an interesting song. It's not a really formulaic song. How he melds like verse and structure is interesting, even though he has a chorus. Hey, sort of a chorus. I mean, oh, Sarah, Sarah, over. Yeah. I think with this song, it's it's two things at once, and that's what makes it interesting. The lyrics themselves, I think, tell a story about a person, Bob Dylan, if you want. He clearly loves his kids. He loves these memories that he's cherishing. But every time we go through a verse, we then come to this chorus where we get this insanity and cool. and the 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 
the phrasing is is well done. Everything fits really well. It doesn't feel like anything's out of place, which I think lulls people into a weird sense of like, oh, this is really good. But really right off the bat, his very first chorus, Sarah, Sarah, whatever made you want to change your mind? Like you don't fucking know. Sarah, Sarah, so easy to look at. <laughs> Yikes. So hard to define. Just wrote, Emotions. Yeah. She's a woman. Yuck. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, right off the bat, you're just not into it. And then it's like, I've got these kids, and they're so cute, and they're playing in their buckets, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this is so nice. And then, sweet virgin angel. Oh, my God. Every time, like, because I would just listen to it in the background sometimes, but every time he said the words sweet virgin angel, I not only had bile come up, but I just, like, instantly was sucked out of whatever else mm-hmm. I was doing. It was like, Aah! It was like somebody just kicked me in the face for a second. Yeah. So jarring and upsetting. We talked on about this really long time ago, about his concept about women. It's either virgin or it's a whore and it's not that simple it just is not that simple but when bob dylan is not really like writing about those things women become these backdrops and even in a song about sarah i feel like he's doing that he's like and and again you could say that it's almost an artistic decision because every chorus contains these cliche nonsense notes whereas all the verses are very like personal because even after that we're radiant jewel mystical wife well and that isis has a line you know isis oh isis you mystical child like okay there's at least a little echo on isis which is a vastly better song than uh sarah is okay whatever but even those two things like a radiant jewel yeah like they're just so generic that's what i'm saying like nobody's gonna get mad at that like if someone called me a radiant jewel i'd be like i think they're all gross yeah Oh, oh! Even ra- so, if somebody called you a radiant jewel. Yeah, they're all gross. Like they're all just like so oh. disingenuous. The the verses are so earnest because he's talking about his kids mm-hmm. and he's talking about actual experience, and then he's just saying the most like gobbledygook, confectionery, gross shit you could think to say. Yeah, I mean the only ones that aren't over the top is where he says, "Wherever wherever we travel, we're never apart." And beautiful lady, you're so dear to my heart. Like that's fine. That's not over the line. Yeah. That's not like sickly sweet, made up, fantastic. No, no, I agree. Scorpio Sphinx in a calico dress? What does that even mean? She was born in October 25th, so she's a Scorpio. All I'm saying is people don't but say... she's in a calico dress. It's nice. Shit like radiant jewel mystical wife to people in real life. No, but it's also... You gotta get... It's a song. It is a song. <laughs> I mean, it's... He's trying. Bob Dylan's been audacious in poetry before, and it's paid off. These are dumb. These are just really generic. They're just icky. They're also just dumb. I just like radiant jewel. Like, how am I a radiant jewel? How how do I exude radiant jewel? That's why I like the the vision of her being nonplussed in the recording studio. Like, like, are you kidding me? Right am now? I supposed to feel something? Yeah, and we'll get into that too because I think that when people think that this is like the best that Bob Dylan can do or the most honest that Bob Dylan can do, because no again, way. I, well, that's what I mean. Well, the verses, yeah, yeah. The, but that, but that is Bob Dylan being being real in the verses and then taking it all back in these weird like completely indulgent choruses where he's just, I think the the most cynical thing you could say is that this is emotional blackmail um, and that he is sort of doing this to make it look like, look at me, I'm writing a song for my wife and she's about to leave me. I'm so good to her. I'm so good to her. Look at the song that I did for her and she's about to, yeah. So that's the most cynical way. And the best way you can do this is to, to acknowledge in a weird way that Bob Dylan is actually acknowledging that all he ever did was put her on a pedestal and they had a real life underneath all of his pretending that he actually loved her or that he was actually 
invested in a relationship. Like he loves her for the kids. He loves the kids and he wished that he could love her or he is so broken that he's doing all this stuff. He can't stop whatever. I think that's the most generous way you can read this, which is look, look at how honest he is in the verses and look at how indulgent and self-interested and and terrible that he is in the choruses. And that's the way that he openly sees her. Let's keep the status quo. And that's what she's been expected to do her whole life. Change her name so that we can keep status quo and I don't have to. I I know she's a prop and it sucks. Yeah. And another way to look at it too, the whole thing with the Chelsea Hotel is weird. A, because people said that he wrote that in February when they were writing Blonde on Blonde. So he was not, he didn't write that in the Chelsea Hotel for her. So he's already lying on that front. (laughs) Um, But it's not to say he didn't have a notebook or something. You know what I mean? So that's kind of. Weird, but in uh, Sean Sean Moylan's actually in his book Bob Dylan in America, he's got a wonderful take on it. Quote: um, It sounded as if he was handing her some sort of a trophy by telling the whole world that she and she alone was the muse behind the masterpiece. And that goes back to you know like making her a prop, making her her agency is gone. Like you just tell everybody, hey, remember that masterpiece that I wrote? This is the person that did it. She doesn't get to say anything. She doesn't get to do anything. Isn't she so pretty? Isn't she so great? And um, I don't know. That's just, and that, that kind of stuck with me. I didn't really think about that. Verse five is the only one that is different in any way. So he kind of drops it in favor of another one. Sleeping in the woods by fire in the night where you fought for my soul. We went up against the odds. I was too young to know you were doing it right. And you didn't, you did it with the strength that belonged to the gods. Whenever we travel, we're never apart. Beautiful lady. So dear to my heart. Those are the ones that were changed from the original. And then there's a whole verse that he completely uh, dropped in the live one. Or rather it was, not in the live one that he added in the studio one. Okay. That's the how did I meet you. The I how did know. I meet you. Yeah. yeah. So verse five, just different. So we yeah. did this one, drop that one. Yeah. So that one, that's cliche as fuck. Like the whole Lily Pond Lane thing. I like the the studio version better than this. Like <laughs> did it with the strength that belonged to the gods. Like, what is that even? What? I mean, it's all just, all it is is cliches <laughs> and metaphors. It's just like using other people's words when you are yourself a poet and you're just like, I'm just going to. I'm just going to phone this one in. Yeah, phone it in, everybody. Phone it okay? in. The only moments in those verses that actually speak to, like, any sort of truth, I think, is when he says, you must, well, sort of, like, you must forgive me my unworthiness. Now, again, being cynical, you could say that's just a cloying line where you're just saying, please forgive me. I'm still trying. Don't leave me. She's a bad person for leaving me. Or you could say that it's an earnest thought, you know, like, I really am. But even the idea of unworthiness, like, we're not not worthy of people. Like, they're not, again, they're not kings and queens. They're not props. They're, they're actual people. Like, have, being worthy of something is weird. That that shouldn't be 
that shouldn't be a dynamic in a relationship. And then the very last line, uh, don't ever leave me, don't ever go, oh, yeah. is pathetic. I mean, and, and that, this song is pathetic. This song is from a pathetic, broken man. And desperate. Desperate as fuck. And at least the last line is desperate as fuck for what it's worth. Yeah. So. I just wrote desperate with a bunch of A's and I channeled uh, Maynard James Keaton in <laughs> Weak and Powerless from A Perfect Circle because he just goes desperate. I was like, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> also, something that was really interesting is that the environment is all around this song. And it's almost like he talks more about like. That the beach, beach with and the the, yeah. instead of like his wife and I that, absolutely that's why it's so that? hollow I know well but I also think that that's a statement like I know that that's once again like giving Bob Dylan a lot more worth than than I than I should but I don't think that this song was like an earnest attempt at making something like I don't think that he was because he's done it before he's written songs about Sarah this is not one of them this is not a real song about a real person this is a song about a fantasy. This is a song about a, a somebody that you put on a pedestal that we all do. We all have relationships where we just think that the other person is better than us or we're better, but we have to put on airs like Bob Dylan's got a complex. And with that complex comes stuff like this, where you either are playing it down, but really you're kind of being eviscerating because if anybody can be eviscerating with words, it's Bob fucking Dylan. This song, if this was the song that was written for your wife who you love, this is not a great love song. This is a rough song. This is a song that says there's so many problems with our relationship that cannot be fixed. And maybe that's it too. Like you just went for sickly sweet metaphors because women are simple and women are going to understand that because it's easy and they just want like a pretty love song or something. I don't know, but I, that's not Bob Dylan. That doesn't smack of Bob Dylan's entire life. That certainly doesn't smack of his art, you know? And again, he's written songs about women before and he's made them complex, real people. And this is like, literally nothing about her like there's nothing in here that's even except for she looks good yeah and when you say she's hard to define then what's the rest of this song going to be about i mean he, he's speaking like he's never met the woman like Almost. you're attractive the end i really enjoyed the song if i didn't listen to anything bob dylan had to say because i just thought it was musically really cool and really beautiful uh the harmonica and the bass create this like cool off-key sound at the very beginning like, it could be a totally different song before it starts, just the way it's like, harmonica, you hear that, and then, blown. like, it's it's so dissonant. Um, it, it almost sounds like an orchestra tuning up to me. It's like, we're about to do something, and it's about to be really cool. I think the song holds after that. It doesn't it doesn't go where I initially those first two the harmonica and then the bass notes th- made me think I was going to go. It actually the first 20 seconds of just the harmonica and bass like figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Uh and then it sort of kicks into yeah. the waltzy. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be a different song than that, but I I really like the song that it became anyway. Um the bass has it's constantly like a minor just progression throughout the whole song. It's a really dark song. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exception being when he says, Sarah, Sarah, we, we have this 
this major progression like the waltzy thing is coming in but every which i think is really why this song is interesting to me is that the the verses are so somber yeah they're so like dark in them i mean it really sounds especially when scarlet comes in those strings it really sounds like a a chamber orchestra playing it's so cool and i it, it just bizarre that the lyrics on top of it but i think that adds to it man if it's like you're sort of darkly reminiscing on the past and then yeah, I guess that you're makes singing sense. about your pedestal. Like if that's all it ever really is going to be in the end, then I'm going to praise the pedestal. Like that's all I ever thought of you anyway. Dark. Yeah. But, for but sure. I'm going to sing it really happy. And then we're going to go back into the darkness. Yeah. Um, but even the light in the darkness is, it's not something like, usually that's something you search for. But in this case, it's kind of like a, there's like a monster in the light and you want to kind of get away from it. So when she, he starts yelling, Sarah, you're like, no, run, hide, get down. Oh God, we're back in the darkness. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. It's like the worst it's kind of horror just movie. when he's saying Sarah, yeah. that it's like, la, la. And then immediately, as soon as he starts saying the bullshit, like beautiful, whatever, yeah. it's again, like we're going back down. Uh, I didn't even notice the acoustic guitar in the first three listens because it's so faint. It's just like an afterthought because it's really about that bass mm-hmm. and those strings. And uh, I did a little experiment because I always have the right earbud in. Mm-hmm. And initially, I didn't even hear Scarlet for the first two times I listened to oh, it. No. And then I was like, holy shit, there's strings <laughs> on this song. Because she's just in the left ear. Those fucking weirdo stereo mixes. I know. Um, for better or worse. They're really fun, but it's also like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah. So it, I just love the layers of it. Um, there's also a really fun moments in this song because of that that we're recording it live we're playing a band this is a whole set piece we're doing this song there's fun moments where like everything drops out for a second except for the bass mm-hmm. where everything drops out for a second except for the drums that i don't know 100 percent of the time was intentional but it was just like somebody was out of time for a second mm-hmm. and maybe it was maybe it was all meticulously planned but just that that added what? to the, the those life that life feeling mm-hmm. added to though like i don't know it was such a cool piece of music and then the the Rolling Thunder, uh, I figured out why I didn't like it as much. No harmonica, which I think is really, like I said, the tone is set immediately with those two, the bass and, and the harmonica playing together. So not having that was a big drawback. And then the acoustic guitars are the majority of what you hear. The bass gets, okay, yeah. because it's a live recording, it's, it's, it's hard to do that. Yeah. But you don't hear Scarlet as well, and you definitely don't hear that bass, which I think is mandatory because you're literally setting the tone. The intention at the show was to get Sarah not to leave him. <laughs> like, it didn't matter what the song right, was. Yeah. Or it was to basically play that song and then, like, immediately play Abandoned Love or play um, a song that he wrote for Suze Rotolo or do a song that he that he is famous for singing or writing about Joan Baez. Like, just <laughs> throwing it into her face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the intention of the song after, you know, post, uh, post-Desire. Oh, one more time at midnight me on the wall Take off your heavy makeup and your shawl Won't you descend from the throne from where you sit Let me feel your love one more time Before I abandon it I mean, the marriage was over in 75 essentially they were separated in 77 they got divorced and this came out in 76 so he was using this as a tool either for a night of reconciliation that he might be able to like convince her to stay or as something to throw in her face and 
Um, this is a pretty vindictive. It, I mean, this is a really harsh portrait of somebody. It was manipulative. It's like, a manipulative. You can't really yeah, blackmail. I think that's away. kind of the best sentimentalized blackmail. Yeah, minus the lyrics, it's a killer song. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad it exists. I guess in the end, when I started, I was like, eh, I don't really. This shouldn't exist, but I'm glad it does. I'm glad that it closes it because it does build Bob Dylan the character, especially the one that we're examining here. We're trying to understand all this shit, and we listen to Wedding Song. It's part of our playlist. You can listen to it as well. I think that it's instructive to do that. Well, the wedding song, I think you made a good point about uh, when we were talking earlier, that it's it's such a huge difference. And it absolutely is. And I like that song lyrically way better. Even though it has the same syrupy kind of thing, it feels more like a memory than that could have happened versus this, which is garbage. I think that was coming from much more of a, of a, of a more stable and honest place. Yeah. Because they weren't separated. They were, you know, he knew what he was doing. But even when you're asking, why, how did this whatever made you want to change your mind. I mean, immediately it's... Like, was it all how, the cheating? Was it all the cheating? It was probably all the cheating. Was it all... The violence and the yeah. drugs use and... Yeah. yeah. And just my lifestyle. What yeah. could it have been? What could it have been? I've been nothing but... Look, I wrote a song for you. Oh my God. Yeah. So so that's always a side that's sort of bizarre. And and everything with Sarah. And we didn't even mention Ronaldo and Clara, but we'll get to that when we when we watch it. Hopefully I figured we have year. more opportunities to Yes. Okay. And that whole thing with Joan Baez, I mean, it is rich. There's plenty more... Uh, Sarah Dillon, we're not done with her by a long shot, um, uh, for what it's worth. I think the mileage of the track is going to vary depending on what you bring into it. Uh, if you think that this is a, like, God-honest love song, like, you want to be called a radiant jewel or whatever, no, I'm no shade thrown on you. Like, that, those are nice things to say. Like, they're inoffensive. They're just completely cliche, generic. So if somebody calls you a radiant jewel and you like that, cool, go for it, whatever. Uh, I do think that it's being um, a little ridiculous when they say this is his most honest song. Like, there's an honest element to it. And I think there is. I think this is is an open song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's like a lot of Bob Dylan songs. And so I think we're being, again, really disingenuous when we're trying to talk about it as a whole and we're just saying stuff. Like, I think when you're just like, this is his most honest song. Well, how, how can you back that up when there are other songs that I think are more honest? Also, this portrait as i brought up before of of uh of sarah and of a woman in general you said you were going to talk about Suze. did you not have anything on no no no, no. i just, oh, yeah. I just looked at stuff it. and i was okay. like oh there'll be opportunities to do this oh, to- oh yeah. there's some, tons of them i think that the thing that irks me the most about this is that it's such a flat portrait of a complex woman but i want to i want to point out two two songs one in particular because this song i think i i'm on board that this song is about Sarah Dillon, and this was written for Bringing It All Back Home, and it's an absolute classic. It's a song called Love Minus Zero, slash No Limit. You're supposed to pronounce it Love Minus Zero, under No Limit. And that's about as, like, empathetic and compassionate of a, hu- of, a of another human being that I've ever heard in a song. My love, she speaks like silence Without ideals of violence She's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. People carry roses and make promises by the hours. My love, she laughs like the flowers. Valentine's can't buy her. When you listen to those two songs and another song called She Belongs to Me, which I think he wrote for Suze, which is also crazy because it's two songs before the song that he wrote about fucking Sarah. So 
even on like these LPs, like everything is getting so mixed up. Like I wonder what Sarah thinks about all of this. I'm sure she doesn't care anymore. But in that moment, it's like, is this song for me? Is it for you? Is it for Suze? Is it for Joan? Is it for Nico? Some people think it's, you know, the Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah, they think it's about fucking Nico. Like, it could be about anybody. It could be about some girl that we don't even know about. Yeah. And that would be infuriating. Thinking on one hand that this is the most honest song, while songs that don't name check people that aren't literally called Sarah are less honest, that's something that Bob Dylan, like, fans that, like, follow this and, like, make those kind of pronouncements need to kind of let go of because... That's that's dumb. You know what else is great? What? Sign on the window. This podcast. <gasps> we are on the internet. Sure are. You are listening to us in a podcast form. We're also at SOTWpod.com. That's the best place to go for all Bob Dylan related stuff. You think it'd be BobDylan.com, but that is wrong. <laughs> and it's actually, that's a loaded statement. I'm not completely lying about that one. <gasps> Shots fired. Shots fired. Come <laughs> go, on, Columbia. Come get your website right. Get your website fixed. Um yeah, come for us, BobDylan.com. I want to see Bob Dylan show up in like a little IT, like with his little IT badge. Like, like a polo looks. shirt that says Bob, Bob Dylan, IT manager of BobDylan.com. Hell yeah. Amazing. Be like, I'll deal with you. I got to work right now, but give me a minute, Bob, if that's your real name. He would totally go by like Zimmy. Yeah, but anyways, Instagram, SoundCloud, Facebook. Um, we're everywhere. We're literally everywhere. It's a TW pod. Uh, Again, dot com, but SFTW pod. Just put it in, tw- in Google. You'll see our Twitter. You'll see our Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So most importantly, you'll see our Patreon. That's the most important part. Patreon.com slash SFTW pod. We did start a Patreon for season two. Um, a couple of people have already signed up for it, which is really nice. We are totally new at it. We are trying our best. We are open to all um, critiques. suggestions, all, everything. Yes. Yeah. Critiques. Yes. Uh, suggestions if you're if you're kind either one it doesn't really matter let us know what sort of stuff you would like to see what sort of stuff we can do better uh what would make you want to put down a dollar we would much rather have more supporters than um you know like a big donor or something like that we're much more interested in getting a lot of people listening so tell your friends tell your family tell your neighbors get on that clothesline you know like take down your clothes and say hey neighbor have you heard of (laughs) sotw pod Oh, man. Listen to that SOTW pod. Hey. Oh, no. I was thinking of that other one. Oh, my God. That just went really backwards in my head. <laughs> hey, something. We're going to catch a trout. Which one was that? Oh. You have you a bottle of bread. Yeah, you have you a bottle of bread. That has gotten warped into clothesline Whoa. saga for me. So, Yikes. cool times. Good times. Good times. Don't get warped like Kelly. Come to our Patreon and our website. Save a mind. Give a dollar. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Kelly. This is the part of the show that we do our recommendations. So, let's start with you. Oh, no. Let's keep this one brief. So yeah. we are going to be doing a uh, a little special Mixed Up Confusion, a shorter one than the normal. But Kelly. Yeah, I don't remember what else I did this week because Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries passed away on Monday. Unexpectedly, obviously, only 46. Um, so that fucked up my entire week. Um, I'm a Cranberries fan and have been for a while. So it was a great opportunity to listen to all of their music over and over, and that's all I did. I don't remember anything else I did. I probably watched The Bachelor or some dumb shit like that. Speaking of which, the Cranberries were on The Bachelor once, and I almost oh. fucking killed myself. <laughs> what did you do this week, Daniel? I looked up on my last FM how many Cranberry songs I'd heard. The answer was three, <laughs> and they only came from 2009 when I was 
at school in Norfolk. Like, did you listen to Linger three times? No, I listened to um, I listened to Linger once on the album. I li- no, I did. I listened to Linger uh, the MTV Unplugged, which is not on Spotify. Okay. Don't know how I came into the MTV Unplugged version of whatever. And then uh, like some other weird song. I don't know. It's not actually from one of their albums. It's just oh. a song. How random. Well, it's even the MTV Unplugged is not a thing. It must have been a Greatest Hits or something like mm-hmm. that. So. Yeah, so I realized I, I hadn't heard anything but Linger and then Dreams, and, okay. and then we... Yeah, I didn't even know. So we listened to everything. I mean, you listen to nothing but that, but I, I listen to every record. So uh, join us on Thursday. We're going to talk about that more in depth um, to kind of get into the, the music and especially what it means to you. As for me this week, I did not listen to the Cranberries back to back to back. Um, I did, however, read a book. Oh, called Custer's Trials, A Life on the Frontier of New America by T.J. Styles. Won a Pulitzer Prize in, um, in history in 2016. It's a really great biography, and I highly recommend it. I was not aware going into this that the defining moment of Custer's life, he was a, a general, he was in the Civil War, he is famous for going out to the Little Bighorn River, And the Lakota and Cheyenne um, slaughtered him and 268 soldiers um, to a man and killed Custer. And he is famous now because of that event. This event in particular was the inciting incident that was like, we're going to forget all about Custer and him being kind of a shithead. And he was. He was an impulsive man. He was a stupid man. Uh, He wanted to be this faux cosmopolitan slash... Uh, cowboy, rave in that reckless 25-year-old way. And he admittedly was there when he got killed, and they found him. Uh, he was one of the only people that wasn't scalped, um, but he was he was uh, slashed in the leg, and he had an arrow through his penis, which was standard practice, and um, he was propped up on a tree, and they didn't scalp him. His long golden locks that he was known for um, in the Civil War. But I found it ballsy. That the biography about Custer, Custer skipped right over the end. I was shocked. Like, we got basically, oh, they rode off. And I was like, oh, next chapter is going to be the event. And then epilogue. And I was like, oh, huh. that's great. I, I can see why some people were sort of infuriated by that. But there's so many books about The Last Stand. There's so okay. many books about Custer. Go read those books. And this picked up, because it's called Custer's Trials, he was court-martialed multiple times for like negligence of duty for people dying on his command because he wasn't giving them rations. He wasn't giving them food. He wasn't, yeah, he was like riding and he was reckless. Again, he's a reckless person and it just centered around those trials. And so the, the epilogue sort of centers around the trial of what happened at little Bighorn. It doesn't really go into what, you know, it kind of tells you the overview because it's not a dick completely to you, but it doesn't, it doesn't get into the kind of history that nobody, nobody that, was there is alive they all died so we only know the stories of the native americans that were there and nothing else and so people have been spending 150 years trying to piece together what happened as if that's important and that's what i love so much about this story is that it doesn't dote on that and in fact he's openly contemptuous contemptuous of custer throughout the entire thing (laughs) And I love it, too, because it's like the whole the, the subtitle of this is a life in a frontier of a new America. So he basically makes Custer like a man of the past, somebody who sort of believes still in slavery and like blacks are inferior and all that kind of stuff, especially. But he fought for the union and he fought gallantly to win the Civil War. But he was a man who just didn't know what to do in this world. And if he wasn't a general, what was he? And he had no idea what he what he could have been or what he was. 
But what was interesting about the, the Native American part um, are two quotes, just two things that really stood out to me right away, um, because his death also brought an end to Native culture as we know it, like Plains Indians roaming the Plains and stuff like that. And it introduced us to a couple of people you might have heard of, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, um, Chief Gall, a lot of people. And, and eventually 1890 was kind of the end of it. W wounded Knee, uh, Sitting Bull was killed. And that was kind of the end. That was the last the last stand for them. And a lot of a lot of great historians make the last stand, not only Custer's last stand, like it was for like the 100 years after his death, but it's also the last stand of the Indians. So you're really creating a picture of everything. Two choice quotes that I... Just want to just want to shout out because I think it's important in this world to be aware of this stuff. Uh, talking about Native Americans, he said, quote, they now endure incessant cultural appropriation by a majority society in the United, in the United States that celebrates an idealized American Indian but ignores reservation life. The economic blight and marginalization of what they are in effect national internment zones exasperated by federal inattention and mismanagement. In Indian country, there are also thriving cultural tra traditions and creative genius, but these often receive little more recognition than the problems. So in the 1980s, the United States versus the Sioux Nation of Indians ruled, the Supreme Court ruled, that the Black Hills were taken without, quote, just compensation. Now that alone is shitty. Like, what's just compensation? They want their land back. They don't want money. The Sioux refused the money. It's been sitting in a Bureau of Indian Affairs account since 1980, accruing compound interest. And as of 2011, it's over a billion dollars to them. But they refuse to take it because they want the land back, not the money. But I love the book because the final sentence encapsulates George Armstrong Custer to a T. You can, you can picture people like him in this world. Those are the people that suck up to the powerful, that are reckless, careless, only think of themselves. And the final lines of the book, no spoilers, but... I love how much he fucking hates Custer. He says, quote, the sudden offstage ending left him suspended forever between East and West, past and future, to be misremembered as needed by each new generation. Oh, <laughs> misremembered as needed. If he just died off screen or was in one of those trials was just deemed unfit for command, he would have been a relic. None of that would have happened. Would it have happened to somebody else? Sure. It definitely would have. He was not, he is not the genocidal maniac that brought on the end of the Indians. The American government and our policies since the beginning of white people setting foot in this country is the reason that the Indians are all dead. George Armstrong Cruster is not the reason for that, but he is certainly, that's how we see him. And when we make him a hero, and if you go to Little Bighorn, which I did two years ago, it's a weird sight. It's a weird thing, even in this day where people are there, like, paying homage. I mean, you, you want to respect the people that died there, because even Indians died there. Everyone died there. A lot of people died there. But to not take in the whole context is something tragic. So, anyways, we talk a lot. Of, we've talked about, like, Vietnam, Grant, George Washington. I think that this is another important aspect of American history that everybody should be well aware of. All right, so after all of that talk about Custer, go out and read a book, people. And listen to some cranberries and join us back on Thursday. We're going to talk about them in depth. Kelly, we're also here to pick next week's song. Yes, Let's we get are. Get on with it. We're about to break in those 480s. I mean, it's light, light. But I don't know if that light is just Bob Dylan screaming Sarah. I can't tell. Uh, <laughs> one out of 492, what you got? 106. Hmm, 106. All right. Different timeline. 106.
is a song called Lone Pilgrim off of 1993's World Gone Wrong. So it's a cover. Uh, this is Bob Dylan coming back to his acoustic self. We listen to Little Maggie. Yeah, um, that was on... Oh, not that. Yeah, because I've been to you, and this was the album he came out the next year. Hmm. So it was a two twofer of uh, acoustic songs. His first acoustic since the 60s. Wow. Anyways, it's a, it's a song. So we would have talked about the history of that song. Little Maggie was a great episode, so... Yeah. And, and, you know, we liked his performance there, so we would have been super into that. But no, it was uh, 451 was the right one. <clears throat> okay. This is great. I love this song. This is going to be great. Uh, it's a song called License to Kill off of 1983's Infidels. Out of eight songs on Infidels, this is our second one. I mean, I guess I picked one of them, so it's not really fair. Uh, but there's also a real live version, which huh. is the same uh, Tangled Up in Blue that's that right. you're a fan of. Uh, anyways, License to Kill. All right. That's a nice short song. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, philosophy and what it means to be alive and what it means to be human. I'm into it. Wow. So Hello. easy topic. Sorry. Easy topic. No, no problem <laughs> at all. So we'll see you uh, next. Uh, we'll see you actually on Thursday. So join us Thursday talking about the cranberries um, as somebody, again, I've never really listened to them. Kelly's an enormous fan. So do you see what's going on here? It's the opposite the of what this show is. In. And then we'll be back on Monday for license to kill episode 40. Four, thank you so much for being out there and thank listening. You. you are literally the greatest person on earth right now. You really are. Just watch out for men screaming, Sarah. Sarah! Just get away as fast <laughs> as you can. See you next week. Bye! She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. She can take the dark out of the nighttime and paint the daytime black. You will start out standing, proud to steal her anything she sees. You will start out standing. Proud to steal her anything she sees But you'll wind up peeking Through her keyhole down upon your 